I'm Ella. I'm Leora. And this is the Expanding Economics Podcast. decades, scientists have been warning us that the continued extraction and burning of fossil fuels will prevent us from reaching international global warming targets. The burning of fossil fuels is the largest contributor to global warming, which has and will continue to cause rising sea levels, devastating floods and heat waves, and the destruction of ecosystems, which lead to mass extinction, food insecurity, and the displacement of millions upon millions of people. Oil spills, invasive pipelines, air pollution, and toxic waste are just a few of the other evils caused by the fossil fuel industry that disproportionately impact Indigenous, low-income, and racialized people. Despite all this, McGill continues to invest about $40 million in oil and gas. Since 2012, the student movement Divest McGill has demanded the university to withdraw its investments from the fossil fuel industry and reallocate that money towards more ethical and lucrative investment opportunities. Divest McGill has brought their case for divestment to the Committee to Advise on Matters of Social Responsibility, abbreviated as CAMSER, which helps McGill's Board of Governors make ethical decisions regarding McGill's endowment investments. But year after year, CAMSER has recommended against fossil fuel divestment because they were, quote, unconvinced that grave injurious impact resulting from the activities of the top 200 fossil fuel companies or a particular fossil fuel company has occurred at this time. In this episode, we clarify how divestment works, why it's such an important tactic for the environmental justice movement, and why McGill and other institutions refuse to adopt it. You will hear from Noah Fisher, a student activist at McGill University. We also spoke with Dr. Darren Barney, a former faculty representative on the Board of Governors who chose to resign along with Dr. Derek Nystrom in 2019 when McGill's Committee to Advise on Matters of Social Responsibility once again refused to divest. Without further ado, let's start the show. My name is Noah Fisher. I've been involved with the climate justice movement for three to four years now. More specifically, I was involved with Divest McGill as relevant to this interview since 2017, especially in 2018 and 2019, and have also been involved with the climate strike movement here in Quebec and the global climate strikes more broadly in 2019, particularly in March and September. All in all, I've been helping with parts of the movement that focused on climate justice and climate change as a systemic issue rather than sustainability and individual issue. Could you explain specifically for our listeners what fossil fuel divestment is and a bit about how it works in real life? Yeah, so divestment is a tactic which gets institutions to take their investments in an industry, a company, a country, and sell those off and refuse to buy more in order to change the behavior of that company, industry, or country. So in the case of the fossil fuel divestment movement, particularly at universities, it tries to get university endowment funds, which is a collection of university investments, to remove their investments in 
fossil fuel industries, sometimes just coal and tar sands specifically, in order to combat climate change. In terms of how it works, it does it in a couple ways. It, on one hand, as is intuitive, tries to restrict the access that these companies have to finance. But more usually what these efforts are trying to do are revoke these companies' social license to operate and put political pressure through the university and through the act of divestment on places like Quebec and the government of Canada to put more stringent policies and regulations on the fossil fuel industry. Something some people get confused about, including myself sometimes, is a bit about the financial theory of it, where it's hard to understand how other less ethical investors won't just buy the shares that McGill ends up selling. So I know you said there's a lot of different ways that divestment helps to restrict the fossil fuel industries, but how do you say that issue plays out in real life? Yeah, so I guess in regards to finances, this is the question that comes up a lot. Um, and there are a lot of studies about the impacts of divestment on share price in particular. It has generally been agreed that share prices won't go down as a consequence of divestment, but this is a bit of a narrow way of looking at it. It can do two other things as well. One is when you get not just universities, but banks to refuse to provide loans to fossil fuel companies, which is one of the impacts divestment is starting to have, it has meaningfully restricted their access to debt. And given the fact that the fossil fuel industry is quite seriously capital intensive, any restriction to their access to finances does make it much harder to operate. All that being said, fossil fuel divestment is just generally not understood as a financial strategy, even if on the surface it very much looks like that. As I said earlier, usually the idea is that it is revoking the industry's social license to operate. And while this kind of sounds more symbolic than anything, it's very much not. An interesting example here was the divestment movement against apartheid South Africa. At the time, especially at its peak in the 80s, a lot of papers were going out saying the same thing. South African economy is fine. Divestment is not going to impact their share prices. It will not put enough pressure to get South Africa to change their apartheid policies. But what was later found is that this feeling of isolation that was created by countries around the world refusing to work with and invest in South Africa did in very meaningful ways impact the way the apartheid regime saw itself and weakened it. So while divestment may not necessarily be effective as a financial strategy, that's fine because it was never supposed to be. The point is really to put political pressure on these industries and to really ostracize them in ways that make it easier to cut them down. Divestment seems like a really big focus for the environmental movement lately. And I was wondering if you had any insight just to why it's such a high priority at this time and also for the past decade or so. The climate justice movement definitely isn't one thing. And so I think divestment is a tactic among many to achieve the various goals of both justice and slowing down climate change. So for example, if you were trying to stop a pipeline, there are some protesters who have taken the tactic of occupying the land until 
the companies either lose too much money and give up. Others have gone with lawsuits, sometimes when it passes through indigenous land. Others have taken political approaches, and divestment is simply a political and financial approach. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you throw enough things at a wall, something will stick, and hopefully with enough pressure from the various directions, including divestment, we'll actually be able to put a dent in climate change. And lastly, I think divestment works because different tactics aren't necessarily as effective from different positions. I myself don't live near to a pipeline and so would be hard pressed to attend like a pipeline protest or occupation. But I do go to McGill University with a billion dollar endowment. And so I can try to put pressure through that. And so a lot of students want to find the tactic that they are capable of pursuing and divestment does that. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you talked about apartheid and I was wondering if you know any other examples of institutions divesting successfully. So South Africa is obviously one of the big ones. At McGill, there's been about three divestment movements. There's been the divestment movement against anti-apartheid South Africa, which succeeded in 1985. The next big one in the United States and Canada was a movement against the tobacco industry. That one peaked in the early 90s, but McGill, as is traditional, took about a decade and a half longer and didn't divest from tobacco until 2005. In contrast, Harvard divested in 89, I believe. And while I don't believe there is any example at McGill, there's also been a divestment movement against Sudan at points. Most recently, in regards to the fossil fuel movement, you've seen a lot of investors from really big funds, and particularly, most recently, the state of New York, the state of Ireland, and Norway have been divesting from fossil fuel. One of the very hopeful things here is they're not merely citing the moral and ethical issues, but they're also citing the fact that fossil fuels increasingly look like bad investments. And I think this looks like a win for the fossil fuel divestment movement because it potentially suggests that it can become a financial strategy because if it's not merely moral or ethical and investors start looking at fossil fuels as bad investments, it may actually meaningfully change their share prices. So these recent big investors saying that they're divesting for financial reasons seems like a very big win to me. Yeah, totally. I was really interested in the way the University of California was talking about their decision to divest from fossil fuels in May because they're talking about alternative energy as a promising opportunity and they're saying they don't want to gamble on fossil fuels anymore. And I thought it was really cool how they're talking about this as like an exciting thing and something forward thinking as opposed to, oh, I guess we'll do this for the environment. Yeah, definitely would like to see divestment framed more as an opportunity to have better investments, to create a better world rather than just to survive. Yeah, definitely. Why aren't institutions divesting from fossil fuels when there's so many other industries to invest in? And what do universities gain economically from investing in fossil fuels in particular? So this is a question that is definitely university by university, country by country. So, for example, the fossil fuel movement in the United Kingdom was just so much more successful than in Canada. Oxford has divested. Just all sorts of big names have done so, mostly from coal and tar sands, not universally from oil as well. But I think that has to do especially with the Canadian domestic economy. So much of it is fossil fuel based and 
investors don't merely want to invest in a successful industry, but rather are trying to diversify their portfolios, that you shouldn't invest at all in companies in this industry is generally seen as increasing the risk of the portfolio. So in part, it's definitely about how investors think about these issues and their version of risk management, which apparently doesn't include climate change. But there are definitely other things going on. McGill, for example, sees itself as a non-political entity. Obviously, this is absurd. McGill does things political all the time. The summer when they refused to take down the statue of James McGill, that was political. This October, when they put out a statement defending the rights of a Uottawa professor to use a racial slur, that was political. In general, I think universities just in particular at McGill do not want to make any big waves, especially when they receive huge research grants from Imperial Oil, which is owned by Exxon. And they just don't want to be on the radar at all there. And they'll make up any excuse not to. Oh, that makes sense. That's very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was also wondering if we could talk about the sustainability strategy for 2020 to 2025 that came out on December 10th. It doesn't talk about divestment, but it suggests other steps for McGill to take, like becoming zero waste by 2035 and a mm -hmm. few other long-term and short-term ideas to make McGill more sustainable. And I was wondering if you could tell me what you think about these promises and why it's not enough and we really need this next step towards divestment. Yeah, I mean, like... Obviously, I have no qualms with McGill trying to make their systems, their processes more sustainable. But when McGill invests nearly $100 million every year into the fossil fuel industry, it kind of doesn't feel like enough. The fossil fuel industry is one that can't be targeted by, you know, individual actions. It's not one that can be targeted by just small institutions. McGill is not the Canadian economy. It's not the global economy. Being more sustainable just isn't enough. Like in order to even put a dent on this issue as was suggested by 2030, but considering how little we've done, a policy that ignores divestment feels irresponsible at best and complicit at worst. Something that kind of bothers me, I was wondering what you think about it, is their focus sometimes on the individual's role in climate change. Mm -hmm. I find on their website, they talk a lot about how we each need to play our part and things like that, going from the student to the school as a whole. And I was wondering what you think about that focus McGill tends to have. Yeah, McGill has been doing this since they first made Vision 2020, I want to say five years ago. My initial instinct is it feels lazy. If someone told you your job was to figure out how to make your institution more sustainable and you said you'll just tell other people to do something better, like, you can do better than that. But on a more serious note, it also just clearly won't work. It's not an exaggeration to say that everything that you touch and experience, that you eat, that you buy, that you interact with on any given day is just embedded with fossil fuels, whether it be the food you eat, how it's grown, processes of extraction and processes of production and processes of transportation. So 
one, I hope McGill can do a better job than telling other people what to do in terms of making McGill more sustainable, but I also hope they start taking this issue more seriously. Decarbonization has been what McGill proposed in response to the last time they've refused to divest from fossil fuel industries. And it's just very clearly not going to be enough. The basic idea of decarbonization is that McGill will try to cut down the carbon intensity of its portfolio by reducing its investments in the biggest polluters, usually focusing on coal and tar sands. But for a lot of reasons, this is just insufficient. The first is that we just need fewer fossil fuels generally. The extent to which they're polluting sure might matter, but at this point, every single square foot or cubic foot of carbon that's put into the atmosphere is just bringing us closer and closer to catastrophe. And I think more interestingly is the idea of Jevons' paradox. So Jevons' paradox pretty much comes from a historical observation that when a system becomes more efficient, its energy usage actually increases, hence why it's called a paradox. I understand this is an economics podcast, so you could discuss it in terms of marginal utility and marginal cost. The idea looks like this. If you have some sort of product, let's say oil, and you make it more efficient and therefore cheaper, on a systems level, people will start using more of it, far more than what was used before by having made it more efficient, right? We've seen this for the last hundred years. We've gotten more and more efficient at using oil and our oil consumption increases every year. So decarbonization cannot be possible without some sort of strategy that simply makes less oil and less consumption possible, or else it just is a nice idea that's going to contribute to the problem. That kind of leads into something else I was wondering about from the CAMSTERS 2019 report. McGill said they probably won't divest until new energy sources completely replace fossil fuel energy across the entire world's economy. But it seems unlikely that will happen ever if all big investors like McGill think this way and refuse to divest. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were, how if universities pride themselves in being at the forefront of innovation, how can they not take these next steps towards green energy and redistribute their investments? Yeah, I mean, so many feelings about this, but my first instinct is it kind of belies the absurdity of the financial logic behind this. If an investment is within the logic of investments, a good one, and therefore they're waiting until fossil fuels are completely replaced across the world economy to divest, the world economy won't exist on the scale that they need an endowment to or need it to for the endowment to function as a consequence of fossil fuel consumption, right? Like it's going to impact agriculture. It's going to cause millions of refugees, if not more, in the next few decades. So this response feels both morally bankrupt, but also financially absurd. And to me, the first thing that comes to mind is like the 2008 financial crash. And if your investments look good, but are genuinely not, all you're going to do is have a bubble burst. But in regards to the university as like 
a forefront of innovation and a moral organization. I think it comes back to something I was saying earlier, which is McGill, particularly the principal Suzanne Fortier, does not like to think of itself as a political organization. Like I said, it is. It was very political in 2019 when it put out a report saying not enough grave social injury, as well as in 2015. But I think they don't want to make waves. They don't want to lose donors. And importantly, they're mostly run by corporate interests. So the way McGill is structured is all of these decisions are run by a board of governors of 25 people, 12 of which are elected by themselves, right? And so you have people here from Petro Canada. You have people here where the former chancellor was a conservative senator. You've had people from the Royal Bank of Canada. You have someone who is a director on Metro and just all these huge corporations. And so even if the university, its students, its faculty, its staff all want to be at the forefront of innovation, the university is structurally built around corporate people and corporate interests. So they can say that they pride themselves on these things all they want, but it's just not true. And it never has been. Yeah, I saw that Divest McGill was originally called Decorporatize McGill. And I mm-hmm. thought that was pretty interesting with yeah, all the conflict of interests, like Cynthia Price, for all who's the head of CAMSER and worked at Canada's largest fossil fuel company, PetroCanada, for over a decade. Yeah. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I was going to say, for reference, um, CAMSER is the Committee to Advise on the Matter of Social Responsibilities, which is a committee of McGill's Board of Governors, which is the one that always decides that they will not divest from fossil fuels. Um, mm-hmm. Just for anyone listening who doesn't have that context of the acronyms. Yeah, thank you. I was wondering what do you think should be done about all these conflict of interests that seem to be preventing us from actually getting a socially responsible investment portfolio? Like you said, the person who chairs the committee that decides whether or not we should divest from fossil fuels worked for Petro Canada for over a decade. So quite simply, they should resign from that position. They shouldn't be making decisions about that. It's explicitly a conflict of interest. But I think, Mm -hmm. as I was alluding to earlier, this is a larger problem at McGill, is that it's inherently undemocratic. And even if you don't believe it should be democratic, it's inherently unaccountable to anyone. There are two student representatives out of the 25 on the board of governors, and there are two faculty representatives. I think for McGill to start resolving these conflicts of interest and stop having decade after decade of fossil fuel, banking, apartheid interests on their board of governors, they need to fundamentally change how this organization works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a quick solution. It seems like there's lots of work to do. Yeah, and I think that's why decorporatized became divest. The last time the Board of Governors changed seriously was the 60s. It'll be a lot of work to get them to change again. Yeah, well, you guys are doing really good work, and there's already been changes made, even if they're not the really huge changes we need. I'm sure Miguel is feeling the pressure. Yeah, that's the hope. The one good sign every time they put out a new sustainability strategy in response to refusing to divest 
is you can at least tell they're feeling some sort of pressure. Mm-hmm. That's true. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to? Yeah. Honestly, all I have to say is that more importantly than what activists are trying to do is the impacts of climate change. So I challenge anyone listening, if I haven't convinced you about divestment, that's fine. Don't get involved with divestment. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Try something new and find a way to fight climate change and the social injustices it causes and that have led to it. Just get involved. That's great advice. I feel like I really understand divestment a lot better after talking to you about it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. My name is Darren Barney. I'm a professor in the Department of Art, History, and Communication Studies. I've been at McGill since 2004, and I'm currently the Grierson Chair in Communication Studies. Before that, I was the Canada Research Chair in Technology and Citizenship. I was a member of the Board of Governors of McGill from 2017 to 2019. And uh, during that period of time, I was pretty heavily involved in some of the the board's politics around fossil fuel divestment uh, as initiated by the campaign by Divest McGill. I'm wondering why specifically fossil fuel divestment is such a priority for the environmental justice movement or student activists, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a different means of Uh, I don't know, reducing fossil fuel consumption at the university itself or uh, different. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of angles that this could take. Right. I mean, I think that the uh, most um, environmental movements uh, understand that fossil fuel divestment is one in a suite of uh, priorities, tactics, measures uh, that will be necessary to uh, meet the ongoing and escalating threat that climate change and its related environmental and and social uh, disruptions are causing. But I think one of the reasons that especially student uh, activists find uh, fossil fuel divestment and especially fossil fuel divestment by universities to be such an important uh, issue is, I think, you know, there, there are kind of three reasons. One is that I think they quite rightly see that um, investment in fossil fuel companies by universities places universities and all those who belong to the university community in a position of kind of ethical jeopardy in that it's widely understood and widely known that the activities of fossil fuel companies are making an extensive and and, uh, dramatic uh, contribution to global warming that is unsustainable and that has kind of reached an imperative point and needs to stop. And so I think activists at the university just feel the ethical weight of that, that they, they, they see that they're part of an institution whose mission is to promote the public good in one way or another through education and research. And yet on the material side of what the institution is doing with its investments, it seems to be on the face of it contradicting that mission. 
students see themselves as implicated in that as members of the university community. And so they want to act to change that. I think that's the first reason. It's just a true and genuine response to an experience of what I would call ethical jeopardy. Uh, the second reason, of course, are more, or I would say more strategic reasons. Fossil fuel divestment campaigns that call on large institutional investors to remove their support from the industry are at least in some way oriented towards trying to deprive that industry of the economic resources that it needs in order to function. We know that that's um, only ever likely to be partially successful because for every investor that um, sells a stock in a fossil fuel company, presumably there's an investor that will probably step up to buy that stock. Um, it's never really been the serious uh, hope, I think, of most divestment movements that they will succeed on an economic level in shutting down an industry. Uh, but nevertheless, part of the strategy is um, has a little bit of that in it, that there is, a, there is some merit to trying to deprive these offensive industries of uh, the resources that they need in order to continue doing their business. I think the third element that's probably more important for most activists is that divestment by very large institutions and especially large institutions that have the credibility that universities have um, really makes a big impact on delegitimizing the industry more broadly and calling public attention to not only the environmental hazards associated with the, with the industry, but also the kind of social burden of uh, continuing to support that kind of activity. Uh, divestment can kind of create a kind of social or contribute to a social and political uh, climate in which continuing with the status quo is less and less politically, socially, and morally viable and pursuing more sustainable alternatives uh, becomes a kind of social and political imperative. And divestment is a big signal uh, in, in that kind of uh, politics, I think. It seems like universities and major institutions are withholding or shying away from divestment because, uh, because they're afraid of being too radical. But as you pointed out, climate justice is incredibly mainstream. Um, and if universities pride themselves at being on the forefront of innovation and for the public good, why don't they take this obvious next step? Well, I think it's because the, the, the radicalness that the uh, university and other large-scale institutional investors worry about is not the perceived radicalness of acting decisively into climate change, or even, I would say, the perceived radicalness of winding down the fossil fuel economy. Right? I don't think that most universities see either of those propositions them, in themselves as particularly radical, because as you say, they increasingly reflect mainstream uh, opinion. And certainly in their rhetoric, universities and other institutions are talking that talk all the time now. So that kind of position is being normalized, right? I think the kind of radicalism that they fear or that they worry about is um, putting themselves in a situation where uh, it appears that university policy or and certainly policy around investments 
is being unduly influenced by political considerations and especially political considerations that are coming from what are perceived to be the more radical elements on campus, whether among the student population or the faculty population, or et cetera. So I think it's, it's not even really the, like I say, the perceived radicalness of fossil fuel divestment or winding down the fossil fuel industry, because after all, there are ways in which the university could begin the process of divestment and do that openly and publicly, right, in ways that weren't like radically transformative overnight, right, that could, that could take place over a phased in period, et cetera, that would be responsible, that would be deliberate, intentional, and all of those things. Um, so again, I don't think it's the radicalness of that that they're worried about. I think what they're worried about is either allowing for a situation or allowing for a perception that university policy, particularly around financial matters, is being somehow uh, um, directed by or dictated by or unduly influenced by political interests uh, on campus. That's a kind of radicalism uh, that they do worry about. And I think that uh, decisions to divest from fossil fuels are kind of strongly associated with sending that kind of message. And that's a message that they absolutely don't want to send. Well, it just feels very undemocratic um, yeah. as, as a kind of organization that claims to represent student interests when it's so obvious that like this is within the majority yeah. of the interest of the student body. Right. So I think that's a, that I think that's a, a correct way to describe the situation that I just kind of laid out. I think it is undemocratic. Um, we have to remember that universities stand in relation to the to the standard of democracy in complicated ways. I would say that um, universities have never really been designed to be strictly democratic institutions. Right. I would say that they have been designed to be collegial institutions, that is to say, where um, the members of the community that the university comprises have uh, institutional and definite roles to play in decision making uh, at the university. In the end, that decision making isn't strictly democratic, but it is supposed to be collegial in that the various constituencies at the university that stretch across categories of students, faculty, staff, and administrators are supposed to together, right, make decisions uh, in the collective interest of the institution. But the reality of the contemporary institution is that those even those collegial, like not strictly democratic, but collegial forms of government governance have been shrinking. Their effectiveness has been systematically reduced. Uh, over recent decades, uh, and the spaces for collegial governance have been uh, kind of either vacated or truncated and uh, uh, replaced by more executive forms of management and decision making. And we can talk about what the various uh, causes for all of that is, but it's basically, you know, over the years as universities have become much more large-scale and com complex economic enterprises, right? The forms of governance appropriate to those kinds of enterprises or thought to be appropriate to those kinds of enterprises have also moved in the direction of more executive 
forms of governance that maybe try to maintain some residue of the collegial forms of, of governance that universities were designed to, uh, to operate under. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, when the chips are down, it's the people at the top making the decisions on behalf of the university. Even though it's sort of like, or even though the governance structure of the board of governors is an executive format, um, it is ultimately, the institution is a university. It's not like for the, its primary interest isn't, it's not like a corporation. Right. So it, it still seems like student interest should be at the forefront. So I'm just, I am kind of perplexed as to why the student yeah. voices are of so little interest to this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Governors or maybe yeah. administration in general. Yeah. I would say a few things to that is that one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that student uh, views are of of little interest, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Fair enough. I think they are. I think they are of considerable interest, mm-hmm. right, to the people that that either the executives that run the university or the board that is uh, at the top of this pyramid. Again, from their perspective, they attend to student interests considerably. That doesn't always mean that they listen to the voice of the students and think that the students understand what's in their own best interest. Right. Right. And so this is where it becomes less of a kind of democratic situation and more of something like a paternalistic situation, right? And this is definitely the case that we've seen around this issue where repeatedly, right, the, the university administration and the board say that they are, you know, a, devoted to student interests attentive to them, taking them into consideration. And I believe that in their own minds, they believe themselves to be doing that, right? But what they're not doing is simply uh, accepting what I think is the democratic consensus among students, that the ethical jeopardy of the university's investments in fossil fuels needs to be relieved. In order for the uni- for people for the university community to be able to say our institution reflects its mission in a way that we can stand behind, right? So I think they do care or they do attend. It's just not in the way that we would associate with a more 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 distinctively democratic institution, right? I yeah. think it's a very helpful distinction between yeah. democratic and yeah taking on the uh, responsibility of caring for student voting because right. it can, yeah. it's easy to get caught up in kind of that frustration. Could you talk a bit about your decision to leave the Board of Governors? Uh, how long were you on the board? And also what kind of effect did your departure have on the Board of Governors? And do you think um, that effect is still held in their conscience? Uh, okay, so as I say, I was on the Board of Governors from 2000 to 2019. It was no secret that um, when I sought election to the board, it was partly motivated by my desire to get involved uh, in the board's determination around uh, the issue of fossil fuel divestment. That's not a strange thing. People come to the board with various kinds of motivations and skill sets. And that was one of mine. 
so I came on the board in 2017. It was shortly after the board had made its decision on the, I guess it was the 2015 Divest McGill petition. I think that date's correct. Upon joining the board, the, the first thing that I did was initiate a motion at the board to vacate the decision on that um, petition uh, on the grounds that the board's decision on that petition did not adhere to the council terms of reference. And that motion was defeated. So that was the, uh, that was the end of that. So the decision to leave the board before the end of our terms uh, came as a result of the next cancer petition that was then brought to the board. Basically, our decision to, to leave the board was motivated by two things. One of the principles of, of any board, and certainly prominent in the Board of Governors at McGill, is that there is a requirement of what they call board loyalty, which is to say that once the board makes a decision, it's incumbent upon all the members of the board to publicly support that decision. That's a standard principle of board governance. They don't want to have a situation where there's whatever, you have all your argument and your dissent within the board, but once the board decides, then everyone, the board stands as one. We were repeatedly told throughout our time at the board that if we felt that we couldn't stand behind decisions of the board, right, then we should leave the board. That was hovering. And so as a result of that, and in light of the, what we knew was the principle of board solidarity, we decided that uh, we would resign our positions on the board in anticipation of a position of a decision that we would not be able to support. And in light of the fact that we were not being allowed to have a significant voice in that decision. As to uh, whether our resignations continue to hold the conscience of the other board members, I can't say. I've had no conversations with other board members since my resignation. There's been no indication at all that, that our resignation mattered to anyone at the level of the board. <laughs> so I think the answer, my answer to that would be, no, I don't think it's been held in the conscience of the board in any way. This is just speculation, but based on my experience there, I would say they were probably happy when we resigned because it meant that two significant antagonists uh, were no longer uh, on the scene. In what ways does McGill's administrative structure incentivize fossil fuel investment? And why is it so hard for the Board of Governors to structurally overcome the possibility of alternative yeah. investments? Yeah. The question is a good one. I don't know about structurally incentivizing fossil fuel investment, but I think it does structurally disincentivize divestment, right? It's a slightly different thing. Here's what I always say about uh, the Board of Governors. We need the Board of Governors. <laughs> right? Miguel is a multi-billion dollar corporation. It's not like a little shop. Right. It has massive property interests. It has massive investment interests. It has a massive workforce. It's a huge economic actor. It faces incredibly complex legal uh, issues. To run something like that, you need people who know how to run things like that. Right. And 
professors generally don't know how to run things like that. Mm -hmm. Students don't generally know how to run things like that. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't play a role in running it in that way of collegial government. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a say. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be represented. It doesn't mean that our that the, the, in some cases, the democratic wishes of the campus shouldn't be adhered to. Absolutely. Right? But it's also the case that so long as McGill exists as it does, you need people who know how to make multi-million dollar real estate deals. Right. <laughs> and so you need people like the people on the board who have experience in those areas and make sure that best practices are being adhered to, that the kinds of knowledge that are necessary in order to fulfill the university's mission and you need those people to do all that for no pay, <laughs> right? So McGill draws on its extensive community of alumni and contacts, et cetera, to bring into the Board of Governors people who have those skills and who have the kind of commitment to the university that would lead them to exercise that role in a way that is um, committed to the university's best interests. I would like it if the board was more representative of the diversity of the university's community and more representative of the diversity of the communities that the university is supposed to be serving. Absolutely. I would like it if the board was more democratic in its functioning and more receptive to democratic signaling from the university committee. Absolutely. But I still recognize that you need something like a board, right? Filled with these kinds of people, if you're gonna be the kind of institution that McGill is. So all of that is pre predicated to say those kind of people are not the kind of people who are going to be very um, kind of supportive of divestment types of strategies for the reason that we discussed before. Mm -hmm. Because those are the kinds of people who see a divestment strategy as being a kind of political intervention and allowing some kind of political logic to guide decision making around the disposition of the university's resources. And from their perspective, they feel like that's precisely what they're there to guard against. The contradiction there is that they don't really appreciate or understand that the decision to maintain the status quo and allow the university to continue investing in fossil fuels and fossil fuel industries to the great um, detriment of environmental and indigenous concerns is also a political decision and is also a political position. They don't see that, right? Or they don't acknowledge that. And that's the big contradiction here. But I think the answer to the question is like, what, how is it, how is this, the game structurally rigged against something like a divestment decision? I think the answer is that the kind of people that the university needs to recruit in order to fulfill the board function are those who would see a decision to divest, right? They see that as a kind of political corruption of the governance system of the university in a way that they don't see continuing to invest in fossil fuels as a politically motivated, as a politically motivated decision. And I think that kind of ties into this rationality that um, investment choices are apolitical um, and divorced, that that economics is divorced from politics yeah. is uh, something that's upheld in the discipline of economics and making rational 
so-called objectively financially viable investment decisions does not mean that these decisions are apolitical. Right. That's absolutely correct. They have absolutely internalized that logic, right? That, that basically it's a logic that says economic investments that maintain or extend the status quo, right, are not political. But economic or financial decisions that might disrupt the status quo are political. And that is a logic that they have absolutely internalized. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think a striking example of how funding and investment is obviously political and influenced by social political movements is the recent defund the police movement. Or maybe it's not so recent, but it recently got a lot of attention. Recently high profile, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have two things to say about this, but I don't want to trample on your question. So maybe I'll wait and hear your question. I'll see if I can. Well, my question was actually just going to be, what are your thoughts on this, on this type of objective economic rationale tying into their justification for the apoliticalness of this issue and to the resistance of fossil fuels? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I would say I think I have complicated things to say about this. On the one hand, I just think it's wrong and ideological, that distinction, as you've described it. And I think it's present and operative in the kind of decision making that we've seen. This idea that economic or financial decisions motivated by a desire to change something are political, while economic or financial decisions that are made such that they protect established interests and protect established ways of doing things are not political. That's an absolutely ideological position and distinction that seems to me is very hard to sustain in the real world. Right. OK, so that's one thing. Second thing that I would say about it is that it's not just an ideology. It's also like kind of bolstered by this structure of fiduciary responsibility that encompasses the role of board members in relation to the university's funds. Right. So every board member, every member of any board, but certainly every member of the university's board are bound by a fiduciary obligation. And that fiduciary obligation says that you must act in the best interest of the person or body, in this case, the university that has entrusted you with the job of overseeing the dispensation of its resources. And so what the fiduciary obligations have a longstanding history in law, and they're important because what it says is that if you assume a position at the head of something big and powerful with a lot of people's interests bound up in it, you have to guide that thing in a way that's in the interest of the institution, in the interest of that body, in the interest, and legitimately so, and clearly so. You can't assume that position simply in order to benefit yourself, simply in order to benefit your friends, or simply in order to accomplish some political purpose that you have. So that's a really good and important principle. And it's the kind of principle you want in place in governance of large-scale 
organizations like this one. In this case, of course, very often that ideology that we just described kind of takes cover behind the fiduciary responsibility uh, uh, setup, right? Such that, again, it allows people to say, we can't allow this political imperative to guide our decision-making because that would violate our fiduciary responsibility, you see. Whereas making decisions that, as we've discussed, are also always political insofar as they uh, uh, maintain a, a status quo that is morally objectionable or ethically compromised, right? Those kinds of decisions can be, are more easily articulated with fulfilling fiduciary responsibility, if you see what I mean. So it all kind of fits together in this way. What, what I've always argued, and this is where, you can remember when we first started talking, we said, what are the reasons for that people are, especially activists at the university are, interested in divestment. He said that I said the first one is the ethical jeopardy, right, of their institution being invested in things that are bad or wrong or unjust or, or destructive, right? So it's not just about the politics of wouldn't, you know, a large institution saying this isn't legitimate anymore. It's actually just about the specific ethical jeopardy of we're an institution whose mission devotes us to the public good. Right. And in order to ensure that we have a policy that says that anything we invest in has to be socially responsible. Because if we were just an institution that was about making money, if that was our mission, well, who cares if it's socially responsible? We're about making money, but we're not. We're an institution that's about the public good. And in order to facilitate that, we have a policy about our investments that say we can't invest in things if it's socially irresponsible to do that. To me, that's the whole of the issue. I mean, as an activist, I'm interested in all the other political part, et cetera, of course. But when it comes to the university, to me, the issue is by virtue of our mission and the policies that have been enacted in order to fulfill that mission, we cannot continue to invest in this category of investments. And so long as we remain invested in this category of investments, we are violating that policy and we're violating our mission by extension. The fiduciary obligation that board members have includes and is in fact directed by the policy around socially responsible investment. And that because the mission of the university is one for the public good, not simply the, the, to make money, that stipulation in, in the council terms of reference actually takes priority over the prof mere profitability of the investments. That's the argument that I would make. It's the argument I tried to make over and over again, again, unsuccessfully. And I think, and this is where I would say, like, again, I'm also an activist. And I love my activist friends, and I am down with the political side of the strategy as well. But in a way, that side of the strategy contradicts what I just said, like in a way, uh -huh. right? Because then, because the, in, in response to what I just said around the, what I think is the actual responsibility 
of board members that includes, that says it's not a political question. It's, it's, it's about our actual obligation under these rules, mm -hmm. right? Me trying to make that case, it makes it a little harder when everything else they're hearing is, no, we're doing it to make a political statement. No, we're doing it to make a political statement. We're doing it to make a political statement. See what I mean? And they're like, everyone's saying that it's not just about this rule. It's actually about making a political statement. And so our fiduciary responsibility is to not use the university's resources to make political statements. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. I always, I always like, at least in the context of the board, wanted to say, yeah, yeah, it's not about that. It's about following our own rules. It's about living up to our own mission. It's about our responsibility to what's written down as mm -hmm. the rule. We're not taking a political position. We're just following our own rules. Absolutely. But these, you can see how these two strategies, which are both strategies of the climate divestment movement, can sometimes work against each other in the calculation of the people who are trying to defend the status quo at all costs. Do you think they cite investment in fossil fuels as socially responsible because McGill is a Canadian enterprise and because the fossil fuel industry is so yeah. tied to the Canadian economy or so central yeah. to the Canadian economy? Yeah. Um, there's certainly been times when that has been raised, that McGill has a kind of, as a major Canadian institution and a major Canadian investor, they have a responsibility to be a responsible actor in the context of the Canadian economy as a whole. That's certainly been raised. Uh, but I think my, my big beef has always been that throughout the whole process, from the very beginning when this all started, what cancer has done is to do everything it can to systematically avoid the question almost entirely, right? They started out talking about climate change. Like, you know, what can we do to stop climate change? That's what the university should ta be talking about, not whether our investments are harmful or not. We should be talking about, in general, what the university can do for climate change. And in general, we can do research. We can invest in, in good company, in green companies. We can uh, clean up our, our own operations and make them sustainable. And that's interesting that you bring up the university's or the Board of Governors plan to, to diversify their portfolio and, and look into um, smarter investments or more sustainable investments. Because um, if you look at uh, Divest McGill made a website that lists McGill's investment portfolio. And I think it's something like McGill's invested in over a dozen or maybe several dozen fossil fuel companies, and they're invested in exactly two um, renewable energy right. initiatives. Right. So this is what I mean, is that you can, you can put in place all of the um, measures that you want that will maybe slowly move you in, the, in a desirable direction on all of this. And it would be, and it will be the job of the university community to do exactly what the uh, Vest McGill is doing, as you just described, saying, you know what, it's not going fast enough. It's actually kind of bogus. It's, it's, a, it's like a drop in the bucket, or as I always say, it's like a tear in a salty sea. Like it's, like it's not there yet. 
But again, what it, to me, what the, what I always just want to say is, okay, but as, as Divestment Guild's work has shown, we're still invested in 15 companies or 12 companies that whose daily activities are systematically causing potentially irreparable harm to the environment. And you have yet to say, we're going to stop doing that because we don't invest in harmful companies. So until they do that, everything, all the other good or potentially good things they're doing are halfway good things they're doing or right, are, are not irrelevant, but they're not answering the question. They leave us in ethical jeopardy. Okay, I think that is our time today. Okay. Thank you so much, Darren Barney, for talking with me. That was very insightful, very illuminating and helpful. Um, and I'm sure many other people will agree. Well, thanks, Laura. It was great to talk to you and uh, solidarity. If you would like to read more of Darren Barney's work, you can check out his website, darrenbarneyresearch.mcgill.ca or at grierson-research-group.ca, which are both linked in the show notes. If you wish to submit a question to the Board of Governors for consideration during their next meeting, visit www.mcgill.ca slash Board of Governors and select the Community Sessions menu option. There you will find the question submission form which is due on January 27th at 5 p.m. The Expanding Economics podcast is produced by Leora Scherzer and Ella Corkum, with support from CKUT 90.3 FM on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Theme music is by Ross Graham. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Expanding Economics. If you have any comments, feedback, or topic requests for this economically precarious time, you can get in touch via email at expandingecon.mtl at rethinkeconomics.org. If you want to read more about our greater mission and are curious about heterodox economics, you can check out the website of our affiliated network, rethinkeconomics.org. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time.